April 8th, 1966, Time Magazine published an edition of their weekly news magazine. The front cover was all black and there were three words written in bold red ink. The question was, is God dead? 1966, in the face of people having lived through the Great Depression, two world wars, an influenza pandemic, the Holocaust, the rise of communism, increasingly more scientific explanations for why things happened and how things worked, an epid- a growing epidemic of busyness and distractions, More and more people dabbling in Eastern mysticism. The list goes on and on and on. Despite 97% of Americans saying at that time that they believed in God, (laughs) the question was asked, is God dead? And I would suggest that 55 years later it may no longer be a question but a certainty in many people's minds that, yes, God is indeed dead. We don't need him. He's irrelevant. Not so different from 2,000 years ago, the Israelite feelings that their God might have disappeared, their God might be dead. They probably wouldn't have said that, but they were undoubtedly thinking that. There had been 400 years of prophetic silence. 400 years ago, the first colonists were arriving in North America. Imagine, 400 years after a long and storied experience of God speaking to the Israelite people, 400 years he had been silent, invisible, perhaps uncaring, perhaps dead. Let's look at a story in which this kind of hopelessness appears prominently. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1, the opening words of this gospel. I'll begin reading at the very first verse. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself, Luke writes, have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus, he could have very well been a real person named Theophilus, or perhaps some have suggested Theophilus, which means those who love God, might be a a large group of Christians. It doesn't really matter, but it includes us today, doesn't it? We are Theophilus. I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah 
who belonged to the priestly division, division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife will... Bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Zechariah probably felt that God had abandoned he and Elizabeth. He probably had every right to have come to the conclusion that God was dead. 
God had denied he and his wife a child. He and Elizabeth bore the burden of barrenness for a very long time. There was a rabbinic saying that they probably would have been very familiar with. A saying that said there were seven people, seven kinds of people who would be excommunicated from the chosen people of God. And the list began with the words, a Jew who has no wife or a Jew who has a wife and who has no child. excommunicated from the people of God. Childlessness was a valid ground for divorce. If your wife can't produce, produce children, you can issue a certificate of divorce and find a more fertile woman. I wonder if Zechariah ever entertained that option. Probably not. He and his wife were described as blameless. But that doesn't make the burden any less burdensome, does it? Longing decade after decade for a child. In verses 9 and 10, it talks about the burning of incense in the temple. It's a symbol of the prayers of the people rising up to God. And so the outer courts and the courts surrounding the holy place where Zechariah was there to burn incense were full of people who were praying. And I wonder what Zechariah, on this most proud day of his life, having been chosen to go into the holy place, a place that very few people were ever allowed to go into the holy place and burn the incense. On that day when he probably felt that he was closer to the presence of God than he had ever been in his entire life, what do you suppose he was praying for as he put the incense on the fire? It doesn't say. But I can imagine that he was praying for a child. He was praying for a miracle child. To bring to an end the disgrace that he and Elizabeth felt. The burden of barrenness that they carried. And so when the angel comes and announces this spectacular miracle. That he will indeed, he and his wife will indeed have a a child. And all of this detail given about that child. You can can understand Zachariah, Zachariah saying, how can I be sure of this? I don't want to leave this place without some kind of a certainty. And I'm not sure I can believe that something so extraordinary would happen to me. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. I'm dried up. There's nothing left. And my wife is an old woman. Well past childbearing years. How can I be sure of this? Can you hear the hopelessness in Zechariah's voice? Because I'm sure it's there. And he is just one of many in Israel probably feeling some version of hopelessness. 
Israel had been called out of slavery in Egypt and led through the wilderness where they received instructions about how to worship this God who claimed to be the one and only God. They had been led into the promised land. They had driven many of the people of that promised land out so that they could worship God without hindrance. They had gathered at the tabernacle year after year after year, offering offerings of atonement, praise, submission. And yet woven into that storied history were the repeated times that they failed God, that they felt like God wasn't coming to protect them quickly enough, when they felt like God wasn't there in the ways that they wanted him to be, when the temptations to worship other gods, when the the harvest looked like it would be completely destroyed and they had to reach out to somebody and it just seemed like these fertility gods of the people of Canaan, they, they probably made more sense to them. And so time and time and time again, they had disobeyed God. They had not worshipped God the way he wanted to be worshipped. And what was the result of their spiritual adultery? God allowed them to be defeated and overrun by other peoples. God used the nations that surrounded them to punish them for their spiritual adultery. You can read through the Psalms and hear the broken heart of people who feel like they have been abandoned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken us? All of Israel probably felt that hopelessness. And certainly it had grown worse with the passage of time in the last 400 years. Not only was there no prophetic voice speaking God's word and instructions and hopefulness, but there there was no longer a, a king from the line of David sitting on the throne. One nation after another had stormed into the promised land, had carried people off into exile, sometimes never to return. Eventually, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The best and the brightest were taken off to Babylon Then the Greeks took over, and then the Syrians, and then the Romans. It was just one miserable year after another. And where is God in the midst of all of this? There's a reference that the angel Gabriel makes to Elijah. Perhaps the lowest point in Israel's history. Israel, the northern kingdom, being ruled by Ahab and the horrible queen Jezebel. Actively pursuing the worship of Baal. There are the final words of the final prophet Malachi. Where he gives them a little bit of hope that the the hearts of the parents and the children will be turned back one to another, which means that the hearts of mothers and fathers and their children were at odds with one another. Families divided and destroyed. Parents giving up the the role of being the spiritual mentors for their children and instead being at odds with one another. That's how horrible it was. 400 years of barrenness of leadership and prophecy. In what ways have you felt hopelessness over the course of your life?
when were the times when you felt like God wasn't paying attention, God wasn't there? Have there been times like that? When the heavens were as brass, your prayers seemed to bounce back at you unheard and unanswered? In just a word or two, can you describe a time like that in your life? A hopeless time. When my mother was dying. In high school, the loneliness of adolescence, the misunderstanding, the hopelessness of being perhaps an outcast, or at least you thought you were. A time when you felt hopeless. Parkinson's. Cancer. Get an amen for that, huh? What else? What's that? Wayward children. We have probably tried to to block out some of those memories. We've tried to move past them. But if we put ourselves back in those situations, certainly there was probably a time, if we're being honest with ourselves, when we felt hopeless and when we felt like God didn't care, God might be dead. But hopelessness is only the beginning of Zechariah's story, isn't it? (laughs) We believe in and we serve a speaking God. And certainly there have been times when we didn't hear him and we felt like he wasn't saying much. But then when you read through your, your Bible, you see over and over and over again a God who just can't help but talk to us. He talks in dreams. He talks in visions. He talks words of revelation. Sometimes he talks in an audible voice. He shows up in pillars of fire and smoke and burning bushes that are not consumed. He showed up in the person of Jesus Christ who had one conversation after another. His 33 years and especially those last three years just seemed to be consumed with conversations with any number of kinds of people, even the unexpected kinds of people. Gabriel, an angel. The word angel means messenger. Angels were the mouthpiece of God. They were the emissaries, the ambassadors of God, who spoke the words of God. And Gabriel shows up in Zechariah's life at the time when he felt most hopeless, and he brings him... Good news. Gospel news. Words and promises that are filled with hope. Words that refer back to some of those hopeful prophecies of the Old Testament. Words of prophecy that spoke about the coming of a Messiah and Zechariah and Elizabeth's son is going to be that forerunner of the Messiah. Come on, folks, let it out. (laughs) 
voice your inner woo-hoo. <laughs> what an extraordinary conversation Zechariah has with the angel Gabriel. And in that, that encounter, in those words that the angel spoke, there are parallels that we see. Parallels between his barren wife Elizabeth and other barren women in the Bible. You know that these are the names that came to his mind, right? Sarah, Abraham's wife, and her son Isaac, born when she was as good as dead. (laughs) One of my favorite lines in scripture. (laughs) Rachel, Jacob's wife who had the indignity of watching her sister and the two handmaidens squeeze out babies one after another till finally she gave birth to Joseph and then Benjamin. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, that extraordinary mouthpiece of God. Samson's mother, we don't know her name, I don't think, but one of those standout characters of Old Testament history. All of those sons went on to play crucial, critically important, influential roles in the story of God. And here's Zechariah hearing the angel say, your barren wife is going to give birth to a son and you're going to give him the name John. And I can't help but think that instantly to Zechariah's mind sprang these other names, these other circumstances, these other sons And his heart started beating faster. My son is going to be that kind of a person. These stories didn't end with barrenness, but with glorious birth. There's this Nazarite vow that's referred to, not to drink any grape or wine juice, never to cut his hair. Another one of those Old Testament allusions which in John's case in particular meant that he was going to grow up in a life of fasting. Not able to eat and do things that other people were able to do. He was going to be living a life that was denied many of the pleasurable experiences of life because this Nazarite vow was being imposed on him from birth. He was going to live a life of abstinence. But... He was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit before he was even born. That's a new experience in biblical history. To be filled with the Holy Spirit. I can can go through some fasting if I know there's some feasting on the other end of that. (laughs) And that was the life of John. There's this reference to Elijah, that he's going to be one like Elijah, which in this case is a clear indication that John would be involved in the announcement of the coming Messiah. His son, John the Baptist, was going to be the one to proclaim the long-awaited coming of the Messiah. What would Zechariah have felt as these words were gathering in his mind, being pulled together in his life. What was he feeling about his soon-to-be-born son? 
I imagine they were feelings of honor and glory. I mean, once he got back the, past the, you know, how is this going to happen? <laughs> you know, if he let himself begin to, to believe that the angelic announcement could be possibly true, what he, was he feeling? I'm sure it was honor and glory, but also humility and a little bit of incredulity. How could someone so ordinary as Zachariah be involved in something so extraordinary? How could people like us be involved in the kingdom building work of God? I love the bit of Elizabeth perspective and and story that's tacked on to the end of this. Zachariah's question in verse 18, how can I be sure of this? is answered in Elizabeth's testimony in verse 25. The Lord has done this for me. The Lord has done this for me. The Lord has answered my hopelessness with hope. The Lord has done this for me. John's birth announcement is a prophetic consolation to Elizabeth. The Messiah is the one who is going to bring fruitfulness to barren people. Isn't that good news? The Messiah, the one who will bring fruitfulness to barren people. This is an announcement of the type of ministry that Jesus will have. You see that begin to unfold a few chapters later in Luke chapter 4 in the synagogue in Nazareth. The arrival of Jesus, God in the flesh, is cause for extraordinary hope, wouldn't you say? And you find that word hope woven throughout the New Testament. In Romans, Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. To the Ephesians, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. To the Colossians, he writes, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of what? Of glory. Peter writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. (laughs) What has God said or done to you in your life? that has proven to you his existence, his power, his love. When in the midst of your hopelessness, when in the midst of the darkest days you have ever lived, has God spoken a word of hope? 
a word that has convinced you that God is not dead. God is real. God is loving. God is powerful. God is here. In one or two words, can you describe that hope? The birth of a child. Your your marriage to Isabel. (laughs) Guys, can we testify to that? (laughs) The rest of you, sign up for counseling. Where has God brought hope into your life? So you you see some people who have caused pain in your life receive some sort of consequences for that. God hasn't forgotten that calls us to be righteous and punishes us when we're not. Brian. Introduced him to a strong fellowship of believers, people that help carry us along through the times of hopelessness. And the stories could just keep rolling, couldn't they? In the midst of hopelessness, God shows up and he gives us hope. But how do we appropriate the the hope that is found in Jesus? How do we avail ourselves of the hope that God continues to announce in our world, even though there are many who say that God is dead? How do we come by this hope when we need it most? Zachariah's lack of faith, how can I be sure of this, leads to nine months of silence. Nine months of not being able to say anything. Nine months of being mute. Nine months of having to write everything down on a pad of some sort to communicate with other people. Nine months of only being able to communicate with texting. Can I... Can I Get a witness to how painful that must be, right? Nine months of silence. Nine months in which he is not able to express his own anxieties and uncertainties and opinions as fully as he would like. Nine months when his silence meant that he had more time to pay attention to God. Aren't you amazed at how much more clearly we hear God when we stop complaining? How much more clearly we hear God when we stop arguing? How much more clearly we hear God when we stop insisting on our way? Isn't that an amazing correlation? That's what Zechariah was to experience More opportunity to hear God's assurance. More opportunity to hear God answer that question. How can this be happening to me? Hope is provided when we are able to spend time listening to God. There, the profound nugget of the morning. Hope is provided when we are able to spend time listening to God. Zechariah's excuse for not having confidence in God is based on the empirical facts of his old age and that of his wife. 
But God's grace and power are available regardless of our weakness. God's tremendous power and love and grace is available to us regardless of our infirmities, our doubts, our questions, our arguments. Right? I think of Paul's reminder in Romans. Faith comes by yammering on ceaseless. Oh, no, no. Faith comes by hearing. You had it right. One of my favorite authors on prayer, Mark Thibodeau, describes the types or the stages of prayer, saying we usually begin at talking at God oftentimes borrowing somebody else's words. Now I lay me down to sleep. Our Father who art in heaven, talking at God. He says eventually we move on to talking to God. Lord, I need help. Get me out of this situation. Heal this person that I love. Solve this problem that I need. But he says eventually we need to get to the place where we don't talk at God, we don't talk to God, we Listen to God. William Barclay, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, says, God's voice comes to those who listen for it. You believe that? God's voice comes to those who listen for it. When we are fearful that God is dead, how will we find assurance and hope that he is not? By listening. The altar of incense in the temple in the temple where Zechariah had this conversation with Gabriel is the place where in the morning and the evening, every day of the week, a priest would go in and would add incense to a burning fire just outside of the Holy of Holies where, the, where the, the Ark of the Covenant was located, where God lived, so to speak. So on God's front porch, twice a day, a priest would burn incense. And outside of that place, there would be hundreds, thousands of people gathered who would be praying at the same time the priest was putting the incense on the fire. And the smoke that would billow up from that burning incense was a sign to the people out in the outer courts that their prayers were heard by God, that God was listening. It was a reminder to the Israelites that prayer must play a central role in the life of God's people. Twice a day, every day, their prayers would rise to God. And their confidence was that God would hear their prayers and would answer. Often we think of silence as an undesirable thing. You know, we fill the silence, don't we? We fill the silence with the radio or the TV or any kind of other distraction. We, we think of silence as an undesirable thing. We think of losing our voice. There's a whole medical industry Surrounding, keeping us from losing our voice. I have a throat lozenger in my pocket just because this morning I might lose my voice. We see that as an undesirable thing, but in reality, 
in reality, silence is a tremendous thing. <laughs> Losing my voice might be one of the best things that ever happened. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Look, I've only been going 35 minutes, okay? So I'm bringing it in for a landing here. It is in silence and listening that God's assurances can be heard. I'm too old for this. How is this going to happen? In silence, we receive the assurance of God. Zechariah, Elizabeth, it's not up to you. It's up to me, says God. During the Advent season, I would invite you to make time. And yes, I use that word intentionally. You're probably going to have to make time. Because work or grandchildren or hobbies are going to press in and and want to demand all of our time. But during this Advent time, this season, make time to listen to God every day. And here's what I would specifically suggest. If you don't already have one, find one of those scented candles that I love so dearly. doesn't have to be an expensive Yankee candle. Just go find a candle whose aroma you think you might enjoy. Find a place in your home where you can be quiet for a while and put that candle there. And at least once a day, I would suggest that you light that candle and that will remind you of the incense on the altar in the temple, the prayers of the people ascending to God. And I would suggest that you spend time with my sermon text. So all this week until next Sunday, find a place, bring your candle, bring your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. Read those verses a time or two or three. And then close your mouth. And listen. And see what God might be saying through these verses this week. We live in a country that has come to believe that God is absent. God is silent. God is irrelevant. God is unnecessary. God is dead. 97% of the people back in 1966 said they believed in God, but only 27% or so felt that they were passionate about their faith. I suspect that both of those numbers is far less these days than it was 55 years ago. We live in a country that believes that God is dead. My concern is that for those of us sitting in this room, for those of, us, those of you watching on, on YouTube, my concern is that these kind of thoughts are beginning to creep into our lives and our minds and our hearts as well. Hopelessness is beginning perhaps to get a, a toehold in your life. And I would suggest that the only way to counter this trend is to pray. Oh, pastor... Seriously, that's as good as you can do today? Pray? I already do that. I've got a long prayer list. Well, how about if you set aside the prayer list for a while and listen to see what God might say? Lynn mentioned a new sermon series. Yes, I'm beginning this sermon series today. It's called Prayer Conversations with John. It's sparked by... The story in Luke chapter 11 where Jesus one day was asked by his disciples to teach them how to pray. 
just as John taught his disciples. I'll be preaching through the Gospel of Luke for the next six months or so with an eye specifically on the conversations that people had with God. You might think, well, there aren't an awful lot of those kind of conversations, but who was Jesus? The second person of the Trinity, Son of God, uh, yeah. So people that were having conversations with Jesus were having conversations with, and what do we call prayer? Conversations with God, right? So we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke to all the conversations that the Father had with people, that Jesus had with people, that the Holy Spirit was involved with, that angels were involved with. We're going to have a look at all of these conversations because I hope that our prayer is like that request of Jesus' disciples. Teach us how to pray. Because we need some assurance that God is not dead. It looks that way. It looks that way in our culture. But Lord, we want to hear from your word, your lips uh, personally, that you are not dead, that you are still in the, the work of kingdom building and work miracle working. Prayer isn't complicated. It's just having a conversation with job, with God. Would you bow your heads with me? And let's practice a little bit. The last verse of this text is Elizabeth speaking. Elizabeth, pregnant, going into her sixth month, probably having more difficulty with pregnancy than those young girls. 75-year-olds, how would you like to be pregnant again? 75-year-old husbands, how would you like to be a father again? But Elizabeth says, the Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. What might God be saying to you right now in this moment, this moment perhaps when you're remembering or feeling a certain level of hopelessness? What might God say to you in Elizabeth's words? The Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Just listen for a moment. dismissed 
we would be tempted, Lord, to call out for you and say, this is what we need you to do for us. But Lord, this morning, we're listening instead to hear what you have to say. Not my will, Lord. Not our will, Lord, but your will be done. What uncomfortable, challenging, dangerous, risky, awkward thing do you want us to do for you? The doing of which will one more assurance that you are not dead you are alive you are not absent you are here with us for the rest of eternity Father speak to us your servants are listening this week Lord help us to set aside time to make time to listen to you us assurances, Father, that you are well and you are at work. We love you, Father, and thank you for loving us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.